Isaiah 52, starting at verse 13. And I'll read to the end of the chapter. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, this that was written so long ago, and we thank you, Lord, that it still speaks to us today, uh, just as you do. Uh, From the dawn of creation, Lord, you have always been speaking uh, to mankind, and we ask you to open our ears that we would hear your word. In Jesus' name we give you thanks. Amen. Uh, The last two weeks, we talked about how Jesus had been exalted, and then last week we talked about how he had been tortured. And both of these, obviously, are from Christ's own experience. His exaltation and his torture were what he underwent uh, for his people. And so this week, we uh, focus on verse 15, and let me read it to you again since I read all three. "So So shall he sprinkle many nations... Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. It's hard for me to come up with a phrase to describe what exactly I want to do because I've been looking for one word descriptions and it's hard. But I have chosen the word remarkable for this. In other words, what is something that is remarkable? Uh, Something that is remarkable is something that everybody remembers, that it just strikes deep into not only you, but into all of culture, really, all of our world and world history. So to me, that's what this is speaking of. This is speaking of the remarkability of Christ and what he did. It focuses upon the effects of what he has done as opposed to upon Christ himself. And so both his exaltation and his torture really related to him, what he personally went through. But this is about what he has brought into this world. And there are four thoughts here, each in its own sentence. And so I'll walk through them one at a time. So the first sent- sentence is, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And the torture and the sprinkling are connected because the first sentence starts with so. So you can see that, that what he had underwent with his torture directly corresponds to what it is that he's bringing to pass, what it is that he's affected, the sprinkling. Uh, let me read two verses. Uh, the first is Zechariah 13.1. Uh, Zechariah 13.1 reads, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. So this, of course, is a prophecy of Christ about him bleeding and dying for his people. And yet it is also shown to be the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness for the house of David. And so you can kind of focus upon that as being then just speaking to the Israelites, not speaking to the Gentiles. But there are many verses about Gentiles in the Old Testament, and I'll refer to a few of them. But I wanted to take you to Hebrews 10.22, though, to read another one very similar to this. In Hebrews 10.22, we read, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, 
and our bodies washed with pure water. So the sprinkling that's referred to here in Isaiah 52 is the cleansing that comes from the blood of Christ. The cleansing that was, uh, that was uh, foreshadowed by all of the cleansing rituals that the Israelites practiced in the Old Testament. And they had so many cleansing rituals. Uh, these people could be made unclean for many, many, many reasons. And yet to be made clean, they had to go through this ritual practice of cleansing themselves. So then the second uh, sentence says, kings shall shut their mouths at him. And so I ask you a question. Why is the focus upon kings? Why is it kings shall shut their mouths at him? If you think about it, it makes sense. Because if kings have shut their mouths at him, everyone has shut their mouths at him. Because kings are it, right, on this earth. If you're a king, you're God on earth, right? To the degree that it is possible to have someone be vested with all of this power is the degree to which you really can reign as God on earth. And we see it in dictators. And, and we are hearing about the life of Saul explained through our sermon series. And so we can see that that power went to his head. So kings have that power in their hands. And yet they are shut mouthed at what has happened with Christ. It has shut their mouths. It has caused them to gasp, to gape, to be surprised. Now, let me read to you from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses uh, 1 through 4. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So there is opposition to Christ from earthly kings, earthly rulers. Not all. We know that there are some godly kings, godly rulers. And yet, it is an aspect of our time, of our history, of this world, this fallen world, that who it is would say, that Satan would want to focus his attention upon. Right? It's the opposite of what God does. God in Corinthians speaks of his gospel coming through the lowly, through the unremarkable. And yet Satan wants to go to the focus of power. He wants to go infiltrate governments, infiltrate kings. And so we've, we see the two approaches as to try to... You've, we've got Satan with his power grab and God just through grassroots working his will among his people on this earth. And so you just see the two different approaches to, to people exerting power and influence. You've got Satan's way which in many respects is the world's way as well. We all see it. And then you've got God's way, which is this unremarkable grassroots way. So now, what's interesting about this, though, is this. Skip down to the end of Psalm 2, and you read this in verse 10. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. So God's promise of grace and forgiveness extends even to the kings. He's warning them. He's giving them fair warning that they must heed, that they must not think more highly of themselves than they ought. I remember a few years ago when President Reagan died and I saw the funeral procession. I mean, he was a famous man and uh, in, in more ways than one. And so his funeral was huge. You just had the horses and the solemnity and the beauty. And I remember watching the burial or seeing a picture of it. And you had this beautiful scene where he's being buried at a, at a cemetery overlooking the Pacific Ocean. 
and you've got all of these dignitaries set up and watching this burial. And I remember thinking to myself, this is so remarkable from an earthly perspective. I mean, so much uh, money and, and power is represented here on this little hillside overlooking the Pacific. But yet at the core of it is a dead body. At the core of it is life and death. It's just life as we all know it. I mean, this setting could be in some slum where people are in a tiny little hovel of a, of a funeral home uh, seeing their loved one go away. And so everybody has to suffer this way. Everybody has to suffer death on this earth. And I don't care how much solemnity, how much pomp and circumstance is oriented to this uh, funeral procession, at the essence of it, there's still a dead body. There is a person who has gone to be face-to-face -face with the God of all the earth. And so that's the reality. The reality is not the pomp and circumstance. The reality is that someone has now entered into God's presence. So now the next portion is uh, verse 15, and I have it marked C for the third sentence, and that is, what had not been told them they shall see. What had not been told them they shall see. Again, we're still talking about the kings. And so this is referring, I believe, to Gentile kings for the most part. They were unaware of the history of the Jews by the time of Christ. When was it that the Jewish nation and all of their exodus from Egypt and all of that had been front and center? That had occurred 1,400 years earlier. The height of Solomon and David's reign had been 1,000 years earlier. They were nothing and nobody now. There's nobody in, in the Roman Empire that could care less about what the Jewish nation was all about. And so they had fallen steadily from their height of success on this earth to where now they're just this ignominious little nation. They mean nothing to people on the earth. And so that's why we have this, for what had not been told them, they shall see. There are so many Old Testament prophecies about the Gentile nations coming to God. And yet they came to God through this tiny little Jewish speck of a nation that at this point was still a nothing, no power. It had all been taken from them hundreds of years earlier. And so all their influence had gone away as well. Let me read you a few verses from earlier in Isaiah. I'll start with Isaiah 11.10. Isaiah 11.10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So this was written by Isaiah, written like six, seven hundred years before the time of Christ. And then you have Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And then Isaiah 49.6, and I referred to this a couple weeks ago. 49.6, Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so God is saying, no, just not big enough yet. You know, this nation and, and the salvation of that nation is too much, too little for this earth. I'm giving Christ to everybody, to every nation on earth, all the peoples of the earth. So now there is a reason why the kings of the earth had took no stock of Israel, right? Because they were kind of a nothing and a nobody at that point. But that's what these verses point to. 
They point to the fact that that will have to change. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. So now all kings everywhere and for all time, ever after from the death of Christ, are basically told to take stock of who they are, of what they are, of what they're doing, because they will answer to Christ. And let me read to you a, a few chapters hence, and that's Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Is anybody here Jewish? Part Jewish? Tiny little smidgen of Jewish? See, this is, this is now, all of us have to be thankful for this, right? Because we're all Gentiles for the most part. And so we thank God that he expanded the effect of Christ's death upon all the world, all the earth. The, the Christianity is ex exceedingly unique in the world religions. It is the only religion that has moved its primary base from where it was founded to elsewhere in the world numerous times. And it's in the process now of moving again, most likely. The West has abandoned Christ for the most part, and it is moving to the East. So God is conquering the earth peoples at a time, and this is great. Now, the sacrificial atoning death of Christ was something entirely new on the earth, and that is why the kings were shut-mouthed. It was shocking to them what this meant, what the meaning of, of Christ's death meant. And so Jesus came to a world that didn't expect him to turn it upside down, and yet he did. And even in his lifetime, it didn't turn upside down. It took his disciples and the building of the church to turn it upside down, and that was by design. We're a part of that. We're a part of continuing to turn the world upside down for Christ. And so he does the same still. All of us can point to either in ourselves or in our families, in our culture, people whose lives have been transformed by Christ. He just comes in there, turns everything upside down, and it fixes it, right? It doesn't mess it up. It makes it that much better. But that's what the table's all about. The table is all about us commemorating God turning our lives upside down, inside out, backwards for his glory. So let's come and thank him for this. Father, we thank you for your blessings in our lives. Uh, we thank you for the fact that you have come to all the people of the earth, not just the Jews. You have opened up your arms to embrace the entire globe. We thank you, Father, for this. And we ask you now to be with us. Uh, for all that come forward, to all that partake of your table today, we ask you to bless them, to draw them close to yourself, to remind them of your plan on the earth and that it includes them, that it is for them. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.